Our model of democracy, underpinned by human rights and the rule of law, is being challenged across the globe. Human rights are our ultimate tool to help societies grow in freedom. And we must have the foresight and courage to imagine what might happen if we don't act now. And instead, please, create the world as it should be. Young and old, male and female, rich and poor, from all creeds, races and tribes, they are the heroes of this story. Welcome to Intersections, where human rights and democracy meet. I'm Marty Flax, Director of the Human Rights Initiative and Kosravi Chair in Principled Internationalism at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. Each episode, we'll tackle current events with activists and policymakers at the center of efforts to promote human rights and build stronger, more sustainable democracies. Welcome to another episode of the Intersections podcast. As always, we'll start with our news roundup of key human rights developments over the last two weeks. Helping me to do this is Catherine Zhu, a research intern in our program. Catherine, tell us what was in the news this week. Hi, Marty. First in our list for today is the growing condemnation of the racist remarks made by Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban. On June 23rd, Orban gave a speech at a university event in Romania in which he said, and I quote, We mix within Europe, but we don't want to be a mixed race, a multi-ethnic people who would mix with non-Europeans. Following an outcry across Europe, the leaders of the political groups of the European Parliament formally condemned Orban's racist remarks on July 29th. And although the European Commission initially declined to comment, the Commission's President Ursula von der Leyen finally said on July 30th that all EU member states, including Hungary, signed up to common global values and that discriminating on the basis of race is to trample on those values. So, Catherine, this is obviously a really reprehensible remark. It's not new for Orban, who said a variety of inappropriate things in the past. But this time, do you think there'll be any practical consequences? Not so far. European MPs are pushing to continue withholding pandemic recovery payments from Hungary. These payments were originally paused over concerns about corruption and Orban's anti-LGBTQIA stances. But Orban's statement could potentially prolong the wait for these funds. Otherwise, though, it doesn't appear there will be any serious repercussions. Hungary remains a NATO ally and EU member state, despite its policies, especially its policy towards Russia, being increasingly at odds with other members of both organizations. And Orban remains popular at home. He was overwhelmingly re-elected to a fourth term this spring in an election the OSCE called well-administered and professionally managed, but marred by the absence of a level playing field. He was in the United States this past week at the Conservative Political Action Conference, where he gave a speech using some pretty familiar language here in the U.S., including denouncing the Industrial Fake News Corporation and claiming that as a Christian politician, he can't be racist, really playing to his audience and doubling down on his anti-migration position, calling Hungary the first country in Europe that has, quote, actually built a wall and stopped illegal migration. So some pretty familiar rhetoric to folks here in the U.S., Worth noting, too, that that speech got a standing ovation from the audience. Catherine, what's our next story for today? On July 23rd, 
Myanmar's military regime unexpectedly executed four pro-democracy activists. The executions took place with no notice following a series of secret, closed-door trials. One of the activists who was killed, Ko Jimmy, was part of the 88 Generation Students Group that led an uprising against the military in 1988. Another activist, Pio Ziathal, was a hip-hop artist turned lawmaker who worked in Aung San Suu Kyi's government. The reason we're talking about this is that these were the first executions in Myanmar in more than 30 years. They bring the brutality of Myanmar's military government to another level since the seizure of power about 18 months ago. And according to estimates by the Assistance Association for Political Prisoners in Burma, nearly 15,000 people, many of which were peaceful protesters, have been arrested since the February 2021 coup, and more than 2,100 civilians have been killed. This is a really incredible and serious escalation of the military's crackdown on the pro-democracy movement in Myanmar. Give us a summary of what's happened internationally since the executions took place. Right. So there's been a flurry of international condemnation, including from the UN Security Council, the G7, and from ASEAN. Malaysian Foreign Minister Saifuddin Abdullah called the executions a crime against humanity and said that the military should be banned from attending any ASEAN ministerial meetings. Here in the U.S., the Biden administration is reportedly eyeing oil and gas sanctions against Myanmar, which would add to the current sanctions against the individuals responsible for the coup. On the flip side, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov expressed solidarity for what he called efforts aimed at stabilizing the situation in the country during an official visit to Myanmar on August 3rd. His remarks are perhaps to be expected given the fact that Russia is Myanmar's top arms supplier and has refused to issue an embargo on trading arms despite increasing international pressure to do so. Thanks, Catherine. We'll take a closer look at what these recent developments mean for U.S. policy in Myanmar and Southeast Asia with our interview guest in just a few minutes. But before we do that, let's go to our third and final story. On July 19th, the State Department released the 2022 Trafficking in Persons Report, which assesses and scores 188 countries and territories on their efforts to eliminate human trafficking. The report also evaluates the United States, which received high marks for increasing support to victims and for robustly enforcing the prohibition on imports made with forced labor. However, it found a lack of progress on comprehensively addressing labor trafficking. So it's perhaps less surprising than it should be to see a very disturbing story breaking from Alabama, where a federal class action lawsuit was filed last week accusing Korean car manufacturer Hyundai of using migrant child labor in a factory. Tell us more about those allegations, Catherine. The suit draws on a Reuters investigation, which found that a Hyundai subsidiary in Alabama had hired children as young as 12 years old to manufacture auto parts. One interviewee told Reuters that there were around 50 underaged workers at the plant in violation of multiple federal and state laws. According to staff members, the plant had faced worker shortages and brought on these children to help fill these gaps. The three children identified in the story were all children of migrants to the U.S., and migrant workers are, as we know, a group that is particularly vulnerable to labor exploitation. The plant is blaming its labor recruitment agency for not adequately screening prospective employees. And we know that recruitment agencies are often enablers of systems of human trafficking and forced labor, especially against migrants who are a group that is, as mentioned, especially vulnerable to forced labor and trafficking. And who are the plaintiffs in this case and what are the prospects for success? What's interesting here is that the plaintiffs are current and former owners and lessees of Hyundai vehicles who say that they would not have purchased the cars had they known that they were made of child labor. 
They're suing in federal court in California, where Hyundai's U.S. headquarters are located, under California's consumer protection laws, alleging false advertising and fraudulent concealment. The reason this is interesting is because private individuals and organizations are increasingly using this approach to combat forced labor both in the U.S. and in global supply chains for products that end up being sold in the U.S. In March, for example, the Global Labor Justice International Labor Rights Forum filed a lawsuit in D.C.'s Superior Court against Bumblebee Tuna, alleging that there is forced labor on the ships from which Bumblebee purchases its fish. Well, we'll be watching both of these cases really closely over the coming months. But now I want to turn to today's interview segment. Helping us to understand what's happening in Myanmar right now and what it means for U.S. foreign policy in the region is Aaron Murphy, Deputy Director and Senior Fellow at the Economics Program here at CSIS. Aaron has worked as an analyst on Asian political and foreign policy issues at the CIA and was the director for the Indo-Pacific at the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation. I had the chance to work with her at the State Department on Myanmar policy as well. She went on to found a boutique advisory firm focused on Myanmar, and this year she published a book, Burmese Haze, U.S. Policy in Myanmar's Opening and Closing, which discusses the turbulent past decade of U.S.-Myanmar relations and how U.S. policy has affected Myanmar's political transitions. Erin, welcome to the podcast. We're really delighted to have you with us today. Thanks so much for having me. So we talked a little bit in our news segment already about these executions in Myanmar two weeks ago, but I'd love to get your perspective on what happened, what triggered this very extreme series of events, and, and what drove the timing of it. I think anyone that's looked at Myanmar and its history, with the exception of, I think, the brief quasi-democratic period, which you and I worked together in a different lifetime, that no one is surprised by the callousness of what military regimes can do. But this was kind of a new level, especially when you had countries like Cambodia, ASEAN writ large, China, really trying to tell Senior General Min Aung Lang and the junta leader not to execute these individuals. In terms of what triggered it, it could be that they were trying to send a signal or a message to the protesters. It hasn't really weakened at all. I mean, in terms of having hundreds of thousands of people on the streets, it's not an everyday occurrence. But in terms of the timing, it's really questionable as to what just drove it suddenly, especially the way they did it. It was really cruel. And I think that was the point. Telling their families to bring in, you know, reading glasses and books and that, you know, we're going to meet them, but don't worry, we're not going to execute them. And then suddenly, and, you know, the dawn hours uh, suddenly did. But I think it just shows that they don't care what people say. The previous iterations of the junta have not, but this is, is kind of a whole new level. It's really unbelievable, as you said, for the level of cruelty and just the shocking nature of it, right? If, if they were meant to be a warning to activists, which it sounds like they are, what effect has it had on the movement? What's the reaction been from the people in, of Myanmar? It's ignited it and really focused it as well. I mean, they're under no illusions as to how cruel this junta can be. I think some of the changes that have happened is that the military has gone after people in urban areas. Most of the time during other military governments, they've really focused their air fire and their air power and shootings to the ethnic areas, which are really in the periphery of the country. So in some ways, they, they get a real sense as to the depths that this military regime will go. But if anything, it, you know, from what I've seen in the press, it's, it's really ignited them. They know what they're fighting against. But at the same time, 
I was speaking to someone who's the president of Parami University, and he was saying that people are just really depressed. The depression really wasn't so much what the junta is capable of, but what the international community did not do and is not going to do. And I think that's really where the depression is. Yeah, I want to come back to what the international community did or didn't do in response. But I'm just curious, do you think that this is a sign of what's to come with this regime? Was this a one-off sort of threat, or is this now what to expect going forward? And if the latter, it seems to be setting up even more tension between the regime and now a very fired up and angry activist community. Unfortunately, I don't think this is a one-off. There's already reports that they're going to execute up to 41 people. Again, we'll probably see names that, you know, the international community may recognize. And I think that's what's so shocking about it is you had an 88-generation student member, Kojimi. You had an NLD member of parliament, a rapper, an activist, people who were really well-known. I mean, these people met the highest levels of global government. So you would think that they'd almost be leverage, I guess you could say, and they were hung anyway. So it begs the question, what then for the people who were elected into government or who were currently sitting in government, Aung San Suu Kyi, former ministers, it's, it's really a question of, of what they can do. And I think that no one is under any illusion that they're not in danger. It does feel like a message to the international community as much as anything else. Usually, as you said, people with that level of visibility have some protection, right? Because they're known quantities, as you said, they meet with foreign officials. It really is a slap in the face, not just to the people of Burma, but to those international interlocutors, right? So let's talk about how the international community has responded. So Secretary Blinken was in the region last week. He met ASEAN, including to talk about Myanmar. What do you think is going to come out of those conversations? Will there be any shifts in the position of ASEAN or in the U.S.? Well, I think it depends on the tools that the U.S. thinks it can use and and how far it's willing to go. But, you know, a big question is, what do you do with a a military leader and a government that just doesn't care? They don't care what anyone tells them. And, you know, I point out that China and ASEAN, I think, country and an organization that generally has at least some level of influence on the country, they're, they're not usually the ones that are delivering these hard human rights-focused messages like you need to do better on, on X, Y, and Z. And they did it anyway. And, you know, I think you have to come up with a question is, okay, well, clearly this guy has to go, but what do we do? And it's, we can't work with this guy. He's not going to come to the table. So, so what can we do together? So I'm sure that there are plenty of closed-door conversations with ASEAN partners. Cambodia is incredibly frustrated. I think they can't wait to not be chair so they don't have to deal with this issue. But Indonesia hasn't had much success either. And the five-point consensus, they're pulling from completely different pages on that. And I think that U.S. policymakers, you know, that's one thing I think they support in talking points. But at this point, it's fairly dead in the water. So I think for the Myanmar people, I think it's a similar frustration that we talk about here. A lot of talk about thoughts and prayers, but more action. And for Myanmar, I think the playbook usually has been sanctioned, but you know these folks aren't really part of the international financial system. How do we get to them? There are tools that you can use on economic restrictions, but what can you do to limit the collateral damage with these partners? Also, what is ASEAN, China, clearly not Russia, but Japan, Korea, what are we all willing to do together? Similar to what the U.S. and Europe is doing on Russia, what can we collectively do to make changes happen in this country?
It's oddly similar to conversations that we're having around Afghanistan at the one-year anniversary of the Taliban takeover, where it's become clear that this isn't a government that's going to change. It hasn't evolved. It's not, you know, any more rights respecting than it was 20 years ago. And so the policy response needs to shift from can we change their behavior to how do we constrain their behavior? How do we make it financially, logistically, politically impossible to be as bad as they want? And then on the other side, how do we support civil society, right? How do we protect people, civilians, activists, organizations in Myanmar as much as possible, right? Is there anything that you think in particular the U.S. could be doing on either of those fronts, either on the constraint side or on the kind of support side that we're not doing right now? Yeah, on the constraint side... It's really hard when it comes to economic sanctions, but it's it's you know they have their money somewhere and and you probably are not going to get much leeway with China on certain things especially when it comes to things that make a lot of money like jade or these mega infrastructure projects. But at the same time China has its own limitations and you know not everyone's buying jade and you know clearly they're having some debt issues especially around infrastructure. There are I think creative ways that I think you need to work around this. I mean, I think the first is needs and aid. And uh, working on the Bangladesh anti-border, and these are where most refugees have gone. These are where IDPs go in and out. This is where you have a lot of journalists and activists and folks that have uh, gone AWOL from the military go. And so to continue to keep that support there and also get the buy-in from the Thai and Bangladesh governments, they're not exactly thrilled with having all these hundreds of thousands or in the case of Bangladesh, a million people there, but you don't want to have the burden on them. So we need to continue to have aid there. You know, there's other interesting ways that the communities can work together. Looking through international criminal courts, you know, the military doesn't fear much, but getting thrown in front of a war tribunal as slow as they can be. I mean, we're still trying, I think, Nazi war criminals. They are one step towards reconciliation um, and getting the truth out as to what happened. But even supporting investigations, maintaining evidence, it doesn't help on the day-to-day, but in going forward where we hopefully have that. That's really interesting. Just the idea that there could be some kind of international accountability mechanism, international investigation into the crimes that are being committed. Has that idea gained any traction in the region? I think mostly around the Rohingya issue, unfortunately for them, because it was so horrible and the level of violence was unprecedented, even for Burma, I think that that helped open the door to this idea of collecting evidence. The Kofi Annan Commission report really focused on making sure that nothing was destroyed, that we kept interviews and photographed, documented everything as clearly as possible. And I think that's certainly the same case here. I mean, the violence that's happening, you have social media, you have people recording all of this, you have interviews and people who are escaping. I think it behooves us to make sure that we keep their stories and and keep it warm so that when that possibility comes, whether it's through the UN or through international criminal courts, that we have that together. I was speaking at an event at the East-West Center, and I think one thing that came up as well is pushing the UN to do more. Where is the UN Secretary General? Why hasn't he traveled? I mean, he doesn't have to go to Myanmar, but he has not been in the region. He, you know, again, a lot of thoughts and prayers. So I think there's a lot of frustration with the UN as well. So Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov was in Myanmar last week. What can you tell us about his trip? What motivated it? What messages came out of it? And and what impact do you think it will have in the situation? Sure. I'd say that both countries these days have very few friends and they're finding comfort in each other. Myanmar has had a rather long relationship with Russia, so this isn't entirely new. 
Back in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, there were a lot of education exchanges. Um, I think in the 2000s, what really sparked a lot of concern was a lot of discussion around uh, nuclear power and energy. On the Myanmar side, of course, they emphasized it was for civilian use. Let's hope. But that there were thousands of military students going to Russia to study, and no one had any idea what they were studying, what they were using it for, and where it was coming to. A lot of it was around nuclear science and, and other things. So, of course, there was a lot of concern about where that is. So I'm sure that there's that component of the conversations. But again, I think it's probably on energy use. I don't want to get anyone concerned about World War III and Myanmar and nuclear missiles. It, <laughs> no, certainly not. Do you think it was a coincidence that he went out there so soon after these executions? Or was this trying to send a message? I don't think this was trying to send a message. I think part of it was um, you have... ASEAN meetings. So I think it was it was partly due to that. I think it's also just good timing for both Russia and Myanmar. Again, Myanmar has few friends. This is, I think, the most frustrating thing about Myanmar. There's so many. This is one of them. But you can read between the lines. Sometimes there's something there and sometimes absolutely not. And it's really hard to tell like when you can read into something. So you could spin your head around these things so often and, and come up with nothing. But for Lavrov, Russia needs money. Myanmar has, I think, some money. Myanmar needs weapons, and Russia can supply it. It's, it's very similar to what uh, Myanmar's military relationship is with the North Koreans. Is it's, it's really based on needs, and it's more likely, or at least it was, that Russia could have probably provided higher-grade weaponry than what they would get from China, which was mostly second-hand, although these days I think Russia's supply might be depleting a bit. So it's mutually beneficial for both. But, you know, I think... For Myanmar, this is also good for the UN. Where the UN does make statements is through the UN General Assembly, which we'll see happening this fall, where they could prevent a UN Security Council vote or any action. Usually, Myanmar relies on China, but now they'll have Russia in their, their back. And in exchange, you think they'll arrange export of natural resources or other things of value from Myanmar? They very well could. Um, it's mostly a military-material relationship, but I'm sure they can find other ways to work together. So speaking of friends of Myanmar, I want to get your take on China. You referenced some pressure from China not to carry out these executions and that maybe that was a little unusual for them. What do you think the consequences are of them being ignored? Is that, does that put their relationship with Myanmar in any jeopardy? Probably not. I mean, China, for better or worse, protects very intransigent countries, DPRK, Myanmar. You know, they don't always do what China wants. And I think, if anything, this, this helps undermine the argument that Myanmar is a proxy of China. I think there's always a discussion that Myanmar will do whatever China wants. But Myanmar values its sovereignty so much so. I mean, this is how the military has developed and strengthened. It's, it's a part of their DNA. So I think China is not going to be thrilled. They might let Myanmar hang a little bit, especially in UN General Assembly, whether it's like, I don't know, maybe we will support this statement. And they might, you know, any sort of watered down statement. But in the end, China has a bit of dependency on their country as well. They have an oil and gas pipeline that runs all through the country, ends in Rakhine State, which I'm sure if anyone's been following the news, isn't the most stable. They have a major port 
they have a lot of infrastructure. And I'm sure they also want that Mitzone Dam, which is going to be based up in the north, which is larger than Three Gorges and would deliver a lot of energy resources to China. I'm sure they want to restart that. That was suspended in 2011 under the then Thane Sane administration. It has not been restarted. And I think that, you know, that that would be a win for China. So Myanmar has some leverage there. It's incredible that that dam is still under discussion all these years later. I remember working on that with you, Lena, when that got suspended, um, and what a milestone that was for civil society in Myanmar. It was Myanmar, so exciting opposed it. to have people on the streets cheering for the Myanmar government. I mean, that's when I really was like, things are changing here. And then here we are talking about Myanmar back in the dark days again. It's incredible. So... I want to talk a little more about the region and just get your sense of what lessons other governments are learning from what's happening. So you mentioned Cambodia is certainly ready to be done with their leadership position in ASEAN and dealing with Myanmar. But of course, they can't Mm -hmm. they can't ever really ignore that situation. You know, the Thai government is having its own crackdowns on activists in recent years, not to the same degree, obviously, as what's happening in Myanmar, but very troubling. What lessons are they learning from what's happening in Myanmar? What to get away with. And I think it's as much learning lessons of what we are and are not doing. And when I say we, it's both the United States, but it's also the collective global community of what we're not doing. I mean, you saw this very strong reaction to what the Russians were doing, in part to send messages, I think, to other countries, whether it's China and the South China Sea and Taiwan or other countries that have empire dreams to say that you cannot invade a sovereign country. This is a little bit different in that it's its own country attacking itself. But this is where I think the U.S. has to lead. We've had our own problems here. January 6th is not that far away. We had our own insurrection and an attempted coup. And if we don't do enough on that, that sends a very clear message overseas as well. It's tricky, especially when you look at Thailand. I mean, this is a 200-plus-year ally, strong relationship but the Prayu government has certainly tested that. You know, none of the ASEAN countries are really beacons of democracy, for sure. You know, whether or not it's a government that works there or not. But, you know, continuing to fight the good fight on human rights and, and just not letting these go. And it's, I think the U.S. has tried to have these conversations. Um, but I think the nuance may get lost that we can still be friends and work with you. But that doesn't mean that we're not going to stop criticizing you and wanting you to do better. But we have to also be very clear, we need to do better, too. We're all in this together. But what's going on in the region right now is quite troubling when you think of human rights and personal freedoms, just the safety of of being yourself. But Myanmar is always in its kind of own stratosphere. But I think the steps that global communities do not take sends a very strong message to countries more like Thailand and Cambodia. And I imagine if we're going to have an impact on what happens in Myanmar, as influential as the U.S. is on its own, and as much as they're influenced by China and Russia, you need those regional partners on your side, right? We have to speak with one voice Mm -hmm. from the region, whether that's in isolating them economically or politically or in providing, as you said, support for civilians who fled across borders. You know, we need them as allies in that fight. Right, exactly. Well, this is a lot to take in. There's a lot still coming at us because the situation is not getting any better. So Thank you so much for talking us through what's happening right now. Hopefully we can have you back on to keep track of the situation, particularly, as you said, this fall as the U.N. General Assembly may take this up. But it's been really insightful. So thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Marty.
More information on these issues can be found on this episode's webpage at www.csis.org slash podcasts slash intersections. Follow the Human Rights Initiative on Twitter at CSIS Human Rights. If you like what you just heard, click subscribe. See you soon.